Citycast from Explicity. Indira Gandhi loved to write letters. Rather, she loved to amend drafts of letters, speeches, and messages. The moment she would get a draft, she would reach for her pencil and start amending. Sharda Prasad, her information advisor, called her a compulsive sub-editor. The end product would be invariably better than the draft. She preferred simple and direct expression in the spoken medium. She did not even read the ministry's drafts. They came to me and I tried to reword them in her writing style. My efforts did not fare too badly. Another thing she took great pains about was the menu and seating plans for her dinners. During the Non-Aligned Summit, she hosted daily lunches for a few heads at a time. Every morning during the meeting, I would give her a table plan which would have been prepared by Hamid Ansari, chief of protocol. She would make a few changes and suggest some more. I would give her a revised plan. More changes would follow, followed by another plan and then another. This would go on until about half an hour before the lunch and the table plans would then be printed. Fortunately, the Rashtrapati Bhavan, known for hosting state lunches and dinners, was quick with the job. G.K. Reddy, an influential journalist for the Hindu newspaper, told me that the Prime Minister's great ambition was to get the Nobel Prize for Peace. I did not believe him. But a few weeks later, Principal Secretary Dr. Alexander told me that there was a proposal or a move by some people to nominate her for the Nobel. Kreisky had apparently suggested it to her and promised to gather support for her. I wonder if that was the reason she was keen to go to Austria. Kreisky, of course, was the Chancellor of Austria. He had said a number of times that she wanted to go to Austria only to talk to Kreisky. Alexander also said that he would talk to me about this matter later and that we would have to plan out the campaign for the Nobel very carefully. Why were the 80s pivotal in so many respects? Think, the giddy days of glasnost and perestroika, the end of the Cold War, of the whole Soviet Union, in fact, liberalization, globalization, the opening up of the economy, GATT, open borders, the assassination of Indira Gandhi, the rise of Rajiv Gandhi, who stepped on the gas and pushed the country towards a more open economy. I became a lobbyist in New Delhi in the early 1980s 
In fact, in 1980, I was barely 20 when I joined as a fresher, but when I quit my job and returned to my home in Bangalore in 1988, I had aged more than the chronology of the eight years would suggest. As a young man growing into his own, I was privileged to have been in the middle of the most pivotal period of Indian administration in world history since World War II, up close and in the middle of it. It was a lesson in how policy and administration works. It was a lesson in understanding the scale of their enterprise. And it was a lesson in humility. When you are in your 20s, you have the answer to all problems. And there's a good side to that because you feel both empowered and you feel like a participant with access to these centers of power. But my guest today was one of those who was in such a center of power. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he was a center of power. Chinme Garekhan. Of the many important offices he held, one was being in the Prime Minister's office, both during the time of Indira Gandhi and then Rajiv Gandhi. And then he was India's permanent representative to the United Nations. His book is a memoir of his days at the Prime Minister's office, the real seat of power in India, and following that in the United Nations Security Council during the period of the First Gulf War, another greatly pivotal period for us. Chinme Gare Khan is the author of the memoir, Centers of Power, My Years in the Prime Minister's Office and Security Council. It is always fascinating to think of our history as these things influence the way we think today. And when you have someone who had a ringside seat to those events, you listen carefully. So, joining me from his home in Scarsdale in New York, Ambassador Gare Khan, welcome to the Literary City. Thank you, Ramji. Now, tempting as it is to make this a gossip session about Indra and Rajiv, I would like to make this interview about you. Now, right off the start, when you were choosing between joining the Indian Administrative Service and the Indian Foreign Service, you received two pieces of advice. One from a deputy secretary who told you that if you join the Foreign Service, you might meet and fall in love with a foreign girl and marry her. And former Prime Minister Moraji Desai told you that the IFS, the Indian Foreign Service, is for partying. Not exactly the kind of cautionary tip that you would give a young red-blooded man to keep him from joining the Foreign Service, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Moraji Desai as usual, was quite forthright or blunt uh, when he when he gave me his very precious advice. <laughs> well, that did, did not deter me one bit because my mind was made up already. Right. But consulted Moraji Desai only because my father wanted me to do it. <laughs> and uh, as for the deputy secretary, he was married to a foreign lady. <laughs> so, so he knew what he was talking about. I dare say. But whether he regretted that? Well, I'm assuming he tried to advise you against it. That should say something. But that did not. That does not mean that I was particularly careful not to fall in love. <laughs> I I took it as it came, and if it had happened that I did fall in love with someone, I would have proceeded with that. But. But I did not. 
Just as well. The Foreign Service got to keep you then. <laughs> now, about being a diplomat, Mr. Moraji Desai's opinion notwithstanding, not many other people understand why diplomats exist and what it is that you do. You speak of institutional perspective and memory. How does that work, practically? Yes, the, the, the career officers, the IFRA service officers, are the backbone of the Ministry of External Affairs. Mm -hmm. The politicians come and go. Right. But they do not have the institutional memory. Some issue comes up, the, 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 the storehouse of the memories of on those issues will be with the permanent service. So another way of saying that is remember history so you don't have to repeat it, yes? Right, right, yeah. Now much of your book is set in the 1980s. Now the 80s were a rather pivotal time in world history when the commercial world took center stage, you know, Reagan's supply-side economics and, and so on. Now considering that you had a ringside seat to that circus, I'm eager to know how your view on history shaped up in the 80s and uh, since? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I think the 80s were a pivotal kind of decade. Toward the end of the 80s, what happened was that the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan. They were there in big strength and they were blasting away the Afghan people and the, and the uh, other forces. But finally, they were obliged to pull out of Afghanistan, much against their wish. But Mr. Gorbachev, who was then the boss of the Soviet Union, thought better of the whole situation and decided to pull out. This was a great victory for the Americans. And this eventually, or not too eventually, because it happened within two years, that the Soviet Union itself collapsed. What was the policy of the Americans towards how they handled the yeah. breakup of the Soviet Union? Did they cause it to happen? Well, they, you know, they claimed that we have won. They had won. And, right. and, and in fact, they had actually won the Cold War. Their, their, their policy, their approach was to bleed the Soviets dry. And ah. the Soviets could not keep up. Uh, they were bankrupt economy. They never were really a superpower. Uh, they were superpowered only in the sense that they had huge amount of nuclear weapons. But economically, social cohesion within the country, Outside, they have really no dependable allies. For all these reasons, they were, they were, they, were, they could not really be called a superpower. So they, they, they finally disintegrated. And as we know now, there are 15 or 16 new states, new countries right. born out of that. You mentioned Fukuyama's End of History, which was an essay and then later a book. What did it say? Well, his thesis was very simple, that the uh, United States, the West, has won. That means the liberal economic order, capitalism, has won. Socialism or communism has failed. And this is for all time to come. Uh, there is nothing more to discuss, nothing more to evolve. There no scope for any further evolution. Of, of human society, uh, and so the, what is what is then achieved? That is it. And the final word, definito, no more evolution hmm. of the society. And so that means that in the end of history, he thought. Is that rather simplistic, or 
is it simplistic only in hindsight? Well, at that time, it, it appeared that maybe this was in fact the case. <clears throat> because, you know, now with hindsight, one can say anything. Right. But at that time, at that time, most people really thought that maybe this is so, or that mm-hmm. this is in fact the and, you know, end of any further evolution in human society. One of the interesting effects of the end of the Soviet Union was the rise of Russian oligarchy, wasn't it? Unbridled opportunism. Did you see this coming? Was there any signs of it happening? And how did the Americans capitalize on this? The, the Americans uh, tried and successfully tried to take advantage of this. Because these oligarchs, they, they really went wild here. And, they're dead. Yeah. and through, through them, the, many Americans acquired a lot of assets through their prices. And that many people, I think among them, George Soros, tried to revive the Soviet or the Russian economy. They gave advice, they acted with consultants. So that's, that's what happened. And uh, the, the, the boss of the Russian Federation was Yeltsin. And uh, we mm. all know his weaknesses for vodka right. and for what not. Um, so he was he completely turned progress. Right. Uh, much to the discomfiture or disappointment or unhappiness of many countries around the world. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, this, you say unhappiness because there was suddenly an absence of a balance of power. Was that the principal reason? Exactly. Exactly right. And of right. course, the the people who, who missed the Soviets most were people like the Palestinians mm-hmm. who had a very strong support in Soviet Union and lost all their uh, backing and, and support. Right. Moving on now to the time that you spent with uh, Mrs. Gandhi in the Prime Minister's office. Now, growing up in the 70s, there was this palpable air of socialism. What about Mrs. Gandhi? Was she particularly socialist? Well, I think they... Uh, Mrs. Gandhi had hardly any political ideology of her own. Her main concern was India. Okay. Of course, subsequently, our main concern changed. It remained India, but it ended in a family dimension into it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do not believe that she was socialist per se. I think he had, she had leanings towards it. Mm-hmm. But Nehru definitely had right. the kind of Fabian socialist tendencies. Right. Uh, Gandhi less, mm-hmm. and he, he did. She did believe in uh, you know distribution of wealth, but very often in our case it became distribution of poverty. Right. It did there enough wealth to go around. And how pro-Soviet was her foreign policy? It was not uh, pro-Soviet as as people believed. Mm-hmm. She was. I, I remember that she gave hell to to get ambassador when I was present at that meeting. How so? Did she yell at him? Uh, uh, yes, a little bit. Of course, she would not do that to the foreign ambassador. Right. Really not to Soviet ambassador. ambassador right. But uh, she made it quite clear that her only interest in the Soviet Union was to the Soviets to put pressure on the communist parties in India. Ah. <laughs> so were her foreign policies yes. largely based on such expediency? Yes, yes, yes. 
this was she she thought that she 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 was shocked. She told the I think the Soviet ambassador that here the right and the left are combining to oppose her. <laughs> Such interesting <laughs> insights. So, so you wrote in your book that Indira Gandhi didn't have really a knowledge of foreign affairs, but you did say that she has the street smarts. Yeah. Well, that is true. She did not have academic interest or mm. academic knowledge about foreign affairs and so on. But she had a very good sense of where the national interests of India lay. She had also excellent grounding in foreign policy, uh, being hostess to her father's meetings with foreign leaders. So she used to travel with her father around the world, and uh, she had uh, obvious, obviously she had a keen gasp of what was going around her. She never said or did anything which would give one a reason to to believe that, oh, she doesn't understand anything. That mm. that was not the case at all. She knew perfectly well what was going on. You mentioned that Indira Gandhi was a prolific letter writer. And you also said that uh, Sharada Prasad called her a compulsive sub-editor. Now, who did she write all these letters to? She wrote letters to all and sundry. Uh, but from my perspective, she wrote letters to uh, foreign leaders, uh, and not necessarily right. only leaders, you know, like prime ministers and others. But she had, she knew many people in England and America, especially, mm-hmm. and uh, she used to have frequent correspondence with them all. She was very prompt in replying to letters, both official and personal. Uh, she, she, I think she insisted that every letter that she got from public mm-hmm. at large be acknowledged and replied to as soon as possible. And she would personally approve of any draft that was put up to her. Uh, and she not hardly ever a draft came back, you know, unscathed. It will always be some improvement, actually. Usually improvement. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the compulsive sub-editor part. <laughs> Now, in 1984, there was a change of guard from Mrs. Gandhi to Rajiv Gandhi. And you were there at the time, and and so was I, uh, from the outside, of course. And I recall there being wave after wave of American delegations who were pushing for free trade, G-A-T-T. And I heard Manishankar Ayer say during a visit I made to the PMO that the Indian retort to the Americans asking us to open up our borders to American goods was to ask them to open their borders to Indian workers. I see. <laughs> Were you there at the time? Uh, no, no, I don't know. And uh, could those two things yeah. really be conflated? Well, uh, I, I don't. I, I, that, was, that was a very quick repartee, what he was told, but I don't think he really meant it. I mean, he was not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did seem a little facile to me, but I was only 27 years old. What did I know? Right. <laughs> well, you were a 27-year-old wise guy, as they say. <laughs> wise guy. <laughs> that is funny. I'll take it as a compliment, sir. Okay, so a question that's been bugging me for a long time. In case of doubt, what prevails? Domestic policy or foreign policy? Domestic policy always comes first, Trump's foreign policy. Most of the time, 
that's all the time. The foreign policy is uh, is tailored to domestic policy in the sense that politicians or the prime ministers. Well, firstly, of course, they will they want to protect our own interests, our countries. In. Y- yes, of course. Uh, but then, they, they, one must not forget to protect one's party's interests also. Right, and to speak to that. You write that there was one occasion when you, as a serving diplomat, were not happy with India's foreign policy with regard to Saddam Hussein. And you were in the Security Council at the time. Couldn't have been the most comfortable thing in the world for you? Yes, I was uh, quite unhappy with our policy uh, on uh, Saddam Hussein's attempt to swallow the state Mm. of Kuwait. I was uncomfortable, not necessarily or not only on ethical or moral ground, because obviously Mm. it was wrong of any country to try to overrun another country, but also on practical, on foreign policy ground, because one had to make an assessment as to who is is going to come on top. Uh, Saddam Hussein versus the rest of the world, or certainly the rest of the powerful world in the West. So I thought I was uh, my conviction was that we should be on the winning side. Mm-hmm. We should take our position on the winning side mm-hmm. of this uh, confrontation. While the winning side obviously was the American with all the allies. Right. So I was quite unhappy with the uh, government's policy on that one. My government had its own consideration. Uh, uh, they thought that Saddam Hussein was a great friend of India. So uh-huh. I myself did not share that opinion of you know, Saddam Hussein. But uh, they, after all, ministry had the final say in this. Mm-hmm. But I did feel happy and uncomfortable. I thought myself, uh, maybe I should you know, resign. Mm-hmm. But never seriously. I never seriously considered resignation because I said it is not that important a matter on which I should okay. resign. So I will bad and uh, also because of that position that we took on Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. that we lost a lot of support. All the Gulf countries, of course, were uh, against us, and many right. Western countries also were not happy with us. Even the Soviet Union or the Russians did not support Saddam Hussein. So, uh, obviously, it was the wrong thing to do. We lost uh, an election to the Security Council after that, when we were humiliated in that election mm. for the Security Council. So, all this was the consequence of our stand on uh, the Iraq war. And was it entirely uh, Minister I.K. Gujral's idea to pally up to Saddam Hussein at the time? Yes, I think uh, I think it was not just Mr. Gudral, but there were my colleagues in the industry who, who perhaps were genuinely convinced that uh, Saddam was the best bet for us, but they they miscalculated the the comparative strength of Saddam and the United States, because obviously there was no contest there. So this okay, so we miscalculated. I understand, but. Really, in terms of Saddam versus the rest of the world, we sided with Saddam. What were we thinking? And is is friendship really a tangible matter in uh, in these conditions? Well, I, I think government obviously thought that, maybe they thought that Saddam would prevail in the confrontation, uh, but <laughs> they also uh, believed quite strongly and sincerely, I think, that Saddam was India's friend. And I remember right. uh, when I went to call on Mr. Pranab Mukherjee, the narrative mm-hmm. of this incident that he was there in Baghdad and he told Saddam Hussein that we were running short of oil. Mm-hmm. And Saddam, according to 
Mr. Pranav Mukherjee immediately ordered a Mihaki tanker which was taking oil to Japan uh, and diverted it to Indian shores. Now, I was rather skeptical about this story. Uh, hmm. And uh, we might have picked up the phone and said something in Arabic to someone, which I doubt Mr. Pranav Mukherjee followed. <laughs> but even if he did, uh, you don't know what actually happened after that phone call. Right. So I, I, right. I was very skeptical about that about the story myself. Okay. So that was Gulf 1. And for many years later, we had Gulf 2. Did you foresee all the events leading up to Gulf 2 and the eventual execution of Saddam? Well, I can't say that I foresaw uh, at that time Mm -hmm. exactly what was going to happen and when. But Mm -hmm. uh, it was was obvious that uh, the Americans and the Brits are not very happy that the first Gulf War ended as it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Saddam remained in, in power, in office. Right. So I, from the American point of view, the Gulf War was not really won, not really over, so long as Saddam remained in power. The Bush senior, who was the president at that, at that time of the United States, stopped short of right. going all the way to Baghdad. 20 miles. And, and, yeah. So he did not do that, and he did the right thing. Because he did not have the mandate, the Security mm-hmm. Council did not give Americans that kind of mandate. So he was right, but he was what criticized at home for not going all the way. Uh, so, but then there was the severe regime of sanctions imposed on Iraq. There was devastation, of course, the infrastructure. Iraq had some of the best infrastructure in the Middle East. It was all. Mm-hmm all destroyed. And because though the sanctions made exceptions for food and medicine, mm-hmm. but in, in effect, there was no medication available uh, and the children in particular suffered a lot. Hundreds and thousands of children are severely malnourished mm-hmm. and uh, many of them uh, many of them died. Uh, they, they wanted to extract that pound of or kilograms of flesh from, the, uh, from Iraq. So they kept right. on breeding Iraq. And eventually, I think, given an opportunity, uh, they went ahead and did what they did, I think, Hmm. in 2003. Yeah. What was India's position between Gulf 1 and Gulf 2? Did we step up and help? And anyway, how was this whole thing resolved with Saddam Hussein still in place? Well, the the, the sanctions regime continued. And uh, the Iraq continued to to suffer from that, but the, uh, the 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 root cause of the problem was Iraq's claim that Kuwait was nothing but a province of Iraq, and Saddam Hussein even called Kuwait the nineteenth province of 19th Iraq. Nineteenth province, yeah. yeah. Right. So long as this territorial issue was not settled, there was always the potential for uh, a conflict erupting again. Hmm. So the the Security Council took this unusual step, unprecedented step of imposing a territorial solution uh, on the two countries, uh, especially on on Iraq. So they appointed a group of, I think, three people that finally they did their so-called experts, and they came out with a proposal with the security government accepted. So the Iraq had to accept, had to swallow the, the, the new territorial demarcation uh-huh. Between the Iraq and Kuwait, uh, so the, this this was a we were of course many, many unhappy uh, mm-hmm. with this development uh, because we always had Kashmir at the back of our mind, right. but we did not want to oppose this vote against this uh, 
this resolution, we also have to look behind our shoulder and think of our yeah. national interests. So we, we abstain on that particular resolution. But I remember that I made a strong statement in the council, like yeah. reiterating, reiterating our position. But this is what we do when our position on the substance is something that we are not very happy ourselves with. Hmm. Then we, we had given this uh, outburst, you know, orally. Right. When newspapers do that, they call them editorials. <laughs> now, you came in for a lot of personal praise about the way you handled uh, the Security Council uh, in, in relation to Gulf One, particularly. Well, I don't know about that. I did not hear much praise myself. <laughs> when I was researching you, I read somewhere that you played a very important role and you were praised for it. The only people who praised me were the Americans for some reason. Uh, that uh, they don't go down well with me, I tell you. <laughs> anyway, now to turn to you personally. You are a performance-level Hindustani singer. And you told me that just after this, you're going to head to a lesson? Yes. So as a musician, are you disciplined? Do you practice every single day? I practice one hour every morning. That is cool. And um, yeah, I did give that performance in the India International Center. Right. Hour and a half. Huh. And the, 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 the classical music is really my big, big passion. That's a lovely phrase. Now, you lived all over the world. Has any other music fascinated you? Caught your fancy? Oh, yes. Every, almost every country that I went to, I tried to learn its music. And, and, and I, in Egypt, when I was in Egypt, I went to their music academy to learn their classical music. That's saying something. Yeah. I'm daunted by the Arabic quartertones. <laughs> and thank you for writing that book. You know, personally, it uh, brought back uh, so many memories from so many years ago, about the same period of time that I spent uh, visiting the PMO, among other things, albeit as a junior and relatively callow individual. Thank you. Well, obviously, you were a very enterprising young man. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's no evidence of that in my bank balance. <laughs> but, but there is plenty of evidence that I had a wonderful time here. Ambassador Chinme Gare Khan, thank you so much for being my guest today on The Literary City. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you, Ranji. Thank you. And that was the highly engaging and humorous Ambassador Chinme Gare Khan. His book is titled Centers of Power, My Years in the Prime Minister's Office and Security Council. And there's a link in the podcast description to where you can buy that book. And I'll be back with that fun segment, What's That Word?, where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time but never stop to think about, right after this. And I'm back. This is What's That Word? And here she is, my co-host. Hello. My name is Pranati, but you can call me P. That's P with an A. Not another E. P with an A, what is your game today? <laughs> I really liked Ambassador Gare Khan. I was very absorbed when you were interviewing him. Hmm. You know, people of my generation, we don't really have the benefit of those personal references. I, I know what you mean. And you know, it's uh, no matter what, it's a different conversation when you're talking to someone who was actually on that bus. 
and using to share some common stories. I mean, all that off-the-air stuff you were discussing with him. Yeah, I was in Delhi at the same time that he was in the Prime Minister's office. Right, you said so in the monologue also. Um, but do you remember him from then? Not that I recall. I mean, I only met a few people there. And one of them being Rajiv Gandhi. <laughs> yes, but listen, I was no more than a jumped-up messenger boy. Remember, <laughs> I was only in my late 20s. <laughs> yeah, Ambassador Gari Khan said you were a 27-year-old wise guy. <laughs> <laughs> he did, and I certainly was. No past tense required. <laughs> all right, maybe you're right. Well, although I have no desire to be forever 27. <laughs> right. All right, B with an A, what's that word? So when you were asking the ambassador about Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. I thought of him being hanged. Hmm. It gives me nightmares. Right. Anyway, there's this phrase, and I wonder if it was applicable to Saddam. Which, which, which phrase? Hoist by one's own petard. <laughs> What's so funny? You know, that's a question I can only answer at length. But this is one of my favorite phrases. So anyway, what do you know of its meaning? And why do you think of it in the context of Saddam Hussein's execution by hanging? Well, someone told me once that the word hoist means to mm -hmm. be reta, you know, with mm -hmm. rope. Like ship right. captains are always yelling, hoist the sails in 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 the movies. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And how do you relate it to to the phrase? So I thought hoist by one's own petard meant like some sailor was careless and got his ankle or something caught in the ropes and got pulled up by the pulleys and was just <laughs> dangling from the mast. <laughs> you know, hoist by his own carelessness. <laughs> Are you scripting another movie? <laughs> I would love to, but no one asked me to. Yet. <laughs> How very kind of you. But tell me about the phrase now. Is my example correct? In a general sense, yes, but the specifics are not. Pray tell, meaning etymology, kitchen sink. Okay. All right. Let's break it down here. Oh, goody. Very nerd. All right. <laughs> so let's look at hoist first. Yes, it means to lift up. And that word has its own rather predictable etymology, of course, but it is best known in maritime use, like you said, for lifting heavy sails. And there are also factory machines that lift things up vertically. And those are called hoists. Right, yes, I've seen those on construction sites. Um, they're different from the cranes. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Hoists have a single use. Right, and petard. Right, now this is where the phrase gets interesting. Now, petard is a small explosive device. They were first made of metal, and they were conical or bell-shaped, and later became wooden cubes. Anyway, whatever the shape, they were filled with gunpowder, and were set off with a safe long fuse, and they were used to breach walls and fences and such like. Ah, wait, isn't that the same as a Bangalore torpedo? Yes, very good. Yes, a Bangalore torpedo was one of the inventions of the Madras sappers based in Bangalore, and the Bangalore torpedo was used extensively in World War II. Oh, wow. Hey, listen, did you watch Saving Private Ryan? Yes, of course. 
Okay, in the scene where they attack from the beach, Tom Hanks leads a group of soldiers to breach the uh, German barbed wire defenses on Omaha Beach, and he yells, Give me some Bangalores. You know, he meant Bangalore torpedoes. What? I don't think I registered that. Very few did. It passed rather quickly. Wow, how interesting. So, what does Batard have to do with ropes and sails and hoisting? Nothing. <laughs> what then? So, hoist by, or the original phrase was hoist with, hoist with one's own petard, refer to a guy who gets blown up, in other words, metaphorically, hoist into the air by a bomb that he makes, and that bomb is called petard. So, literally, it's a guy who gets blown into the air by a bomb that he himself crafted. But obviously, oh. he did not do a good job. So the phrase, metaphorically, means that the person who intended to harm others with their own weapon, the petard, ends up getting harmed by themselves. I get it. So it refers to a plan gone awry. Correct. More specifically, getting hurt by one's own schemes, you see. And so when did this phrase actually become a phrase? Shakespeare. In Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 4, it goes like this. For tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard. Wow, that's interesting. So my careless sailor example was not wrong. It was fine, as I said, but not in the detail. You see, I have discussed this phrase with others previously, and lots of people have the same idea that you had, which is that the petard was that system of pulleys and ropes used to hoist the sails and not a bomb. Yeah, I get it. Then what's the etymology of petard? Fart. <laughs> what? Yes, fart. Passing wind. But you know, letting one loose. You know, <laughs> in, you know, in addition to its military meaning, petard had another usage in Old French, which is quite different and you know, obviously somewhat funny. In Old French, pete means to break wind or simply fart. And what you pete, a petard, <laughs> is a fart. <laughs> of course, you're loving the frat boy element in all of this, aren't you? And you've never laughed at a fart joke. <laughs> okay, busted. Fine. But how do the two meanings connect? Right. So the connection between the two meanings is not apparent immediately, but it appears to be due to the noise. <laughs> Due to the noise and sudden release associated with both actions. <laughs> the bomb and the fart. You see, <laughs> so the noise of a small explosion may have been likened to the sound of breaking wind, leading the French to call a fart a petard. <laughs> You're not kidding me, are you? No, I never joke about etymology. Hey, this is onomatopic. Stop. <laughs> You're dragging me up. <laughs> oh, really? So who's the frat boy now? And no but, making anagrams of frat. <laughs> now, what other word could one possibly make with the letters F-R-A-T? Hmm. <laughs> rat Never mind. <laughs> Too much. I need to hoist myself out of here. Bye. And that's our show. 
I'd like to thank my guest, Ambassador Chinmay Ghare Khan, and my co-host, Pranati P. with an A, Madhav. And I'd like to thank all of you for being here and for listening and for sending us so many wonderful messages. It really feels good. Now, before you go, as always, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and leave us some likes and some comments, whatever those comments might be, because apparently everything helps. So, until next time, have a great week.